This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Very pleased uh, today to have an uh, In Super Energy Efficiency Leadership Lecture. I'm John Bowers, Director of the In Super Energy Efficiency, and we've had a number of these over the years, and, and great speakers and, and well attended. And uh, as I think you know, there are six group areas for the Institute, and uh, buildings is one of them, and perhaps buildings is the most important one in the sense that buildings use up 40% of the uh, energy in the United States. So. Uh, the other five take up less than that. So uh, we're very pleased today to have a topic that's very important and uh, one that I think affects certainly all of commercial industry and, and uh, universities as well as, as, as our own residential. So I'm very pleased to introduce Igor Mezik. Igor is a, a professor of mechanical engineering and he runs the solution group that's focused on building efficiency. And they've had a lot of advances and they've had some very interesting roundtables with lots of software companies coming and, and talking about how to more effectively manage buildings. So he's done a great job at that. And so without further ado, Igor Mezik. Uh, so thank you, John. It's my honor and privilege to uh, introduce our guest today. Our guest is Daryl Smith. He um, uh, now runs is the director of the facilities and energy at Microsoft, but also has another role. He's the global sustainability energy manager for Microsoft as well. He spent time at uh, Cisco doing a very similar role. And uh, earlier in his past, he was just up from here at San Luis Obispo, Obispo where he got all his degrees. Now, Daryl and I met um, when I visited the Microsoft campus uh, just some months ago. And I can tell you that it's really quite impressive what they have done with the aspects of smart buildings in their own facilities. Um, also, there is a full lab of testing. So if you are a company that actually wants to go in and, and, and test something, Daryl is going to kindly uh, right away do that. But you might wait for the good news or the bad news. You, don't know what's exactly going to come out. Um, he knows pretty much everything in this space. He was the keynote speaker at Caltech's uh, Energy Forum just uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, it's, as I said, my honor and privilege to uh, have him here and uh, give us a talk on smart buildings or buildings with a brain. Darrell. very much. Thank you uh, very much, Igor. It's great to be here. And, um, um, I'm honored to be here. And this is a very interesting topic. And, and so my objective is to really take you through a journey, <clears throat> excuse me, of what we've done over the last couple of years and how we're driving ener energy efficiency at city, city scale using data. And that's really the fundamentals. So I think the, the one thing I did want to show is, so Microsoft is carbon neutral. We've been carbon neutral since uh, our fiscal year 13, and we have these are our pillars of, of being lean, be green, be accountable. And this is real important. I'll show you why in a minute. So, so under each, each, each of these pillars are our tactics. The ones that I focus on the most is we actually charge a carbon fee at Microsoft. So if you have travel, if you have buildings, or if you travel, you have buildings, um, you actually assess a fee. That fee helps me make investments in energy sustainably, sustainable projects around the world. The other thing is, too, is what are we doing around our buildings? How are we setting goals and targets? 
And I think the most important thing about this slide here is the architect of it, her name is TJ DiCaprio, who oversees our carbon neutrality. She's an alum of UCSB and asked that I mention her work. So maybe she's going to be a future speaker here. So, um, so let's, let's get down to really about the, the campus in Microsoft. So our Puget Sound campus is 145 structures, 15 million square feet, and, 100, um, and about 58,000, 58, 59,000 housed heads. It's one of the largest contiguous corporate campuses in the world. And there's a lot of data up here, but there's a couple really good points. Is one, we have multiple disparate building systems. So the way that Microsoft grew was <clears throat> over a number of decades, there was, there was phenomenal growth. And there was, at one point, three people in every office. So there's pressure on the real estate team to deliver space. So we had developers building buildings. We were building greenfields. And while we were building to the energy efficient standards of the time, we didn't have a, a binder that says, all right, if you're going to build a Microsoft building, here's a specification, here's the design standards, here's the, 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 all, the, all the content you'd need to know how to build a Microsoft building. So contractors did what, what you do when you're um, pressured to deliver as quickly. You went to the first manufacturer. And if they couldn't deliver the space, you went to another, another, another. So, an outcome of that is you ask me, what manufacturers do we have? What type of building design? What type of building control systems? My answer is yes, we have it all. It, and it's very hard to manage a campus this scale with all this different disparity. And we're no different than, say, a, a city. We're a small city, but a city nonetheless. So we have a lot of disparity, and it's a very, very causing a lot of waste for us. So the other issue is we have a lot of data. So across our portfolio, we collect half a billion data transactions every 24 hours. And up until recently, we had done absolutely nothing with that wealth of data. We overrode it, we deleted it, and, and there really was, was not a way for us to harness this. So we have a lot of disparity and a lot of data. And that really was our jumping off point. So we ran around the world, we talked to technology peers, we talked to national labs, universities, with this concept of how do you drive energy efficiency with data you, you have? How, how are you doing it? How are others doing it? And the theme that came out of it, and, and now a dear friend at, at HP says, it sounds like an interesting concept. Let us know when you figure it out. So there wasn't anything I could point to to say, they've got it. They're the beacon. We'll follow them. And so, as you probably understand, this isn't a Microsoft problem. This is an industry problem. The construction industry has been building buildings the same way for the last 30 plus years. Everything built in silos. So for our campus, if I make a change to our mechanical systems, um, say I want to change a two degree set point across the entire campus. Mind you, it'd take me several days to do it. But I don't know, did I just improve energy efficiency? Did I degrade it? All our power monitoring, all the data, the rich data of all our energy is, is in another application, another tool. So it takes hours and hours in, to build this. And I would say that my team, my engineers at Microsoft, 80% of our time was spent as analysts, going through spreadsheets, putting data loggers on, and really compiling data. 20% of our time, we were really engineers. And there's a pretty big problem with that. So we said, this is definitely something we have to address. There were two ways to go about this. One, we could rip out all the existing systems, all the different manufacturers we had, all the different controllers, and replace it with one. There were two problems. First is, I wouldn't get some of the capabilities I was striving for 
and the second it was $70 million. And, and so it didn't make a financial sense. And, and real estate sits in finance. That's where we report. So you know, we think of everything really anchored in ROI. And it just wasn't feasible. Plus, I had to have building shutdowns, lab shutdowns. And I'm sure it's similar to, to labs within universities. And if I asked for a shutdown in the lab, they said, well, how does 2024 sound? So there, it just wasn't going to happen. The other approach was, what if I could take data from all these existing systems, applications, um, and use that data and take it to a common platform? And that's the approach that we took. So you think of our situation. We have disparate systems, applications. I can't look at one building to the next. I can't compare system to system, even built in, in the similar year, because to get that data out is very, very time consuming. So we have a lot of, lot of challenge with that. Also, we do a quarterly lab report. We pull all the energy meters across the entire campus of every lab, and that takes about 80 hours. That's why we call it the quarterly lab report, not the monthly lab report, because it's just too long to do it. And so, so that was a lot of the churn. Honestly, and this is embarrassing to say, we had a clipboard budget. We were actually walking around some of our key things with clipboards. And let me remind you, we are Microsoft. We're using clipboards. It's not the, not the uh, tablet that we want to be with. So, <clears throat> so that was the situation. <clears throat> so we started with a, as everyone else does, a procurement activity. So we started with 56 vendors around the world, got down to six for an RFP. And then we did a three vendor pilot for a year. And, and so we looked at, our pilot actually was the same area as the Empire State Building. So it's about 2.6 million square feet. So you got old buildings, new buildings, different systems. And, and that way the vendors over the course of this year would be able to tell us, you know, we could prove that they could actually execute on what they say. And uh, it, was, it was difficult for my team because I did not allow anybody to take a vacation, get sick. Or, um, or leave early. So I would have never wished this on anybody. So if you're ever going to do a pilot for a year, maybe two vendors is good. So anyway, and then the, everything that our objection, our objective was reduce our energy consumption. That was what the core of what we're trying to do. But we also wanted to optimize the building assets. Look, we own most of our own buildings in, in Redmond. So we own about $4 billion of assets. If I can extend the lives of these assets, that's real dollars. And then the third thing is we want to improve labor efficiencies. My nemesis is windshield time. And the windshield time is really you get a call, you go look at the, the issue, you go to the parts house, go back, make the repairs. All this waste, all this movement is muda. How do you, how do, you do that more effectively? So the, uh, the three approaches we took were fault detection, energy management, alarm management. Fault detection is where the money's at. And I actually underestimated the value of that considerably when we started. And fault detection's been around a long time. It's nothing new. We just haven't seen it applied in buildings. And so just to give you, an, uh, you know, what's the difference between a building um, fault and a building alarm, let me use a medical analogy. With a building alarm, you're in the hospital. You're in the emergency room. You're too late. You know, the, something has happened and it's failed. Um, with a building fault, it's as if your physician's telling you, well, your cholesterol's rising, your blood pressure's increasing. It's a precursor to catastrophic failure. And we look for two different things. When equipment's not running as designed, or when someone's made a set point outside our standard. If any of those two occur, we want to see it. And then the other thing is really being able to manage your energy consumption. So we basically, before this, were managing our energy from the utility bill. 
So I could tell you it's something that happened 60 days ago, but by then it's too late. And how do you react? How do you, and, and we'll, I'll show you really what that, the benefits of that. So, so these were our approaches. But because fault detection is so important and it is changing the way we manage our buildings, I want to give you a little scenario. So this is a 30,000 CFM air handler, the big box on the roof, or 85-ton unit. And I've been doing facilities management for close to 20 years. And there's two different modes in facility management. Either everything is fantastic or hair is on fire. There's really no middle ground. I'm not sure yet why. So we're in the building. We're having our meeting. We're doing our work. And all of a sudden, um, we have something going to alarm. And it's, it's dumping cold air into space. And we're bleeding energy. And we're in our trucks. And we're running. We're going. And, and we make that diving catch. And this diving catch is what we're used to. That's how our, you know, you ask to anybody that does facilities, that's, that's our normal MO. Why? Why does that have to be it? And, and I argue it's not. So really with fault detection, we actually can see when assets start to degrade. So for this example, it's 71 degrees in the space. So none of the building, none of the people in the building know there's an issue. Um, and I need to preface this by saying, I have 59,000 living sensors in our campus. Those are employees calling, saying, I'm hot, I cold, I hear noise. I don't want our employees to be sensors. So we can see as stuff starts to degrade, and we can actually decide at what moment do we want to respond. Do we add something to the work order? Do we actually go respond? Is it critical? And if we do nothing, uh, we're in the same boat we were before. So what's very interesting is we've added no meters, no sensors, no hardware. This is a completely software play. We're taking the data, and, and for this example, this is a 300 CFM terminal unit. It's probably what's above our head providing the cool air. Uh, this is a very small, small unit. We have ones that are, are much, much larger a bit. The point is, this is how it came from the factory. We did add the plexiglass, I should say, but basically all the components is how it came, and that data is what we use to command and control it. You know, turn dampers on, off, turn the resistive heater on, off, and, and so that's the data that I talk about that we've had. We're actually using that data to tell us equipment, tell us what the equipment's doing, how's it performing. Um, and that's really an interesting, interesting way because this is a capability we just didn't have before. Um, and, and I should say that we have 45,000 assets we maintain. So that's a couple things. So from a fault detection standpoint, Think of it this way, I'm casting a net across the entire campus to tell me what everything, what every piece of equipment is doing. And so we have a fault rule, and I have about 225 fault rules at scale, roughly 45,000 assets. So fault rule is, what are we looking for? What's the, what's the condition of the equipment that we want to see? And then I have the, the points, so what points do I need, say from the building automation system or maybe another system? And what's the syntax? So, so we actually write this ourselves. It's if-then-else statements. That's all we're doing. You know, if I'm running the air conditioner and the front door and the front window's open, tell me. It's in essence what it is. But here's the really cool part. Not only can I tell you what's not working as design, I can tell you how much it's costing in wasted energy. So we can actually prioritize on energy waste. This is our fault rules here. An important part here is this is you know the, the, what we're looking for, the class, but if the one's up at the boxes, that's a pseudocode. That's the if-then-else statements. And actually, we have duration. So it's really important when you're looking at fault detection 
to understand duration. Because if you look at and you flag everything that's in fault without a duration, then everything's broken. You catch transit, you catch everything, and, and you go crazy. So some things we are looking at every one second, some things we're looking at every 15 minutes, some things we're looking at every once a week. That's the, that's the frequency or, or uh, duration we look at. And then we added the two columns at the end. What's the possible causes? What's the possible solutions? Because we want the people in the field, the ones that are working on this, to know what to do. So this is just an example of one of the buildings we connected to. So this is um, a LEED Silver building. And I'm a fan of LEED, USGBC LEED. It's really helped the industry. And, and this is a brand new building, or it's been in operation for a year. Uh, we identified roughly 17% energy saves in, in just a couple weeks. And, you know, really, I was, I was, I was, it was shocking to have a lead building, because the plaque looks great. And, and so, of course, it, somebody's got to be wrong, because it's a lead building. How could it be inefficient? And it really comes down to a couple things. One, buildings aren't energy efficient unless they're operated efficiently, first and foremost. Second thing is commissioning, and we hire a third-party commissioning agent to do commissioning our buildings. It doesn't go very wide, doesn't go very deep. And um, so, so coupled with that, and so here's just real three examples. The outside, um, outside damper was stuck that, that brings the cold air into the building. So that free cooling, and we have a lot of that, a lot of hours in Seattle. The building automation system says, hey, you're cooling, it's wonderful, you're, you're using all that outside air, but we really weren't. The dampers were all closed, the commas were all closed, and we're running every compressor in this building. So that's where, where, how do you find that if you only have one thing telling you? And the other thing is, we had a problem with the sewer uh, pump in the basement. This building has four-level car park. And so we put all the garage exhaust fan in manual while we made a re the repairs. That was about a year ago. That was about $60,000 ago. Nobody realized it was left in manual. So that's an example of catching something where set's been, set points been made outside our standard, the other ones where something's not running as designed. So our energy manager, who looks at all the energy consumption for, for the US, goes through and looks for different elements. And if you look at this graph, and I took the axis off on purpose, you see maybe, OK, this building is running seven days a week. I have a quick moment to look at it. I don't see any weird. So pass it, pay it on, everything's fine. The problem is, if you see that little peak that's Wednesday at noon. If you follow that peak over, that's Thursday at noon, Friday at noon, those flat lines are Saturday, Sunday. The peak you're seeing there is actually occurring at midnight. So we're hitting a 900 kW peak at midnight. And of course, you're going, what the heck could cause a whole building to go to, especially this building, to go to 900 kW? The only way it could do that is if all the heaters in the entire building were on. Guess what? There was a code error in the building automation system that told that building to go to 80 degrees every day at midnight. And it has been doing that for seven months. So, and it probably could have been doing it for another month. So, so being able to, to catch things like that. And, and so really, when you think about data, you know, if you give me the annual energy consumption of the building, and you give me 12 months worth of weather. I can tell you a ton about a building. This is our, our California campus. I can tell you seasonal variation. I can tell you if you're economizing. I can tell you a lot. But if we connect and can see that data in real time, what can we really tell you? So this campus, we connected in November of last year. So just a couple months ago, we found $240,000 of energy saves in 30 days. 
That, by the way, paid for the software and deployment. Go team. Um, and, and so the percentage you see on each item is the percentage of that $240,000 that we found. And it's interesting that um, the uh, um, HVAC setback, basically somebody coming in and say, hey, I need to run this room, this conference room, this building over here for, for the next three weeks 24-7. Uh, and nobody caught that that has been that way for the last six months, year. So, so those, it was interesting that that was such a uh, big find, but it was, look, we have very talented people running this building. PG&E had audited this building and, and couldn't find any issues whatsoever, um, but we were running the boiler at 190 degrees year-round, and this is down in Silicon Valley. And so the biggest point here is the phone wasn't ringing. The people in the building, the facilities team said, we're doing a great job. Nobody's calling, nobody's complaining. But what is happening is the air handlers are pushing air in at 55 degrees, and right before the air got to the space, the heaters, and we're, we're hot water um, fed, the heaters warmed up the air. And it was doing this in the middle of summer. So hey, why not turn off the heater and just bring the air in a little bit warmer? In essence, that's what that was, and that was a huge savings. So again, just because the phone isn't ringing doesn't mean the building's really optimized, and that's a really important um, finding for us. So, so I want to give you a couple pictures of before. And this is our corporate campus before. So this is one of our building automation systems. We have several. Oh, why would you want just one? Um, if you see all those colors across all the buildings, those colors mean absolutely nothing. I can't tell how much energy we're using, what buildings are in distress, which buildings are running well. It's just a very simple building. Our simple, simple um, map. And so if I click on one of the buildings, well, if you're in the wrong application, you're in the wrong system, it, it's very cumbersome. So if we have a power bump or a windstorm, and we tend to get those in the Pacific Northwest, we roll trucks. We actually drive around those campuses, our lights on, our lights on, you hear the generator, you hear the generator, go to the next campus, next campus, as we're diving into systems as well. If you give me about five to six hours after any pretty good sized power bump, I'll tell you the condition of the campus. But five to six hours is an awful long time. So that's one of our pains. Um, the other one is when it's above a design degree at our campus, and it does get in the close to hundreds um, in Redmond, we take screenshots of the chillers, air handlers pump, our mechanical equipment, and these screen captures, the screenshots, those are our engineering data in winter. So we actually are going through screen captures is how we do our engineering. That's just one step above clipboards in my mind. So, so that's, again, we're, we're Microsoft. So that was the before. That was painful. So this is the after. So this is one of our dashboards. This is our executive dashboard. And I'm doing much better because I used to get a lot more emotional. But this is every building automation system, every power meter, every lighting control on one screen. The orange is energy. The blue line is weather. I know which the top performing buildings are. Up in the left corner, the arrow goes up or down each week, depending on how the building's performing. We were at 47 megawatts. Um, this circle, this circle is how we think about our energy. We think about it in three buckets, plug load, base load, and lab load. So it used to take us eight weeks at the end of every fiscal year to tell our executives where the power went. Now I can tell them where it's going in real time. But actually can dive into each of the plug loads, or each of the, the segments. So this is people. This is Tuesday through Friday. And how do I know it's Friday? Because the peak before lunch, because you see those little divots are lunch, is kind of higher before the peak after lunch. So I'm assuming there's a lot of people that went to work from home that day. 
Um, but we also can look at buildings profile. So this is city center, so it's a 28-story building. It's a mid-rise, has a huge lab in the bottom. Um, and so I can break down here. So the top three boxes are static. The top right are dynamic. So as you'll see, as we step this building on in the morning, we got to about a 2. Point, what is that? 2.2 megawatt peak. And so great, that's typically how that building runs. Then we see something like this. Huh, this building's hitting a four megawatt peak all of a sudden. We didn't add any stuff. We didn't add people, didn't add labs. What could possibly make a building go from 2.2 megawatt peak to four megawatt peak in, in relatively a short time? Well, the only thing in my mind is that if the entire building came on at once, that's what happened. So there was a scheduling error that instead of stepping, stepping on the, the floors one at a time, um, it actually told the whole building to come on all at the same time. That inrush is what caused that peak. This could have gone on for months and months and months, if not longer, because we just don't look for it. The utility companies sometimes will catch it, but you know, um, you know, you, it's it's really when energy managers going through a lot of files and trying to find this. We flagged this. We caught it about three days later. So that was that was pretty interesting. Now let me show you the cool stuff because I haven't touched on the cool stuff. That screen before is all about energy management, and, and that's important. That's good, but this is where it gets really exciting. So this is our operational dashboard. Every building has pins on it. And these pins can be whatever I want. So what I look for is, does the building have utilities? Are the backup generators running? Uh, do we have communications to the building? Do we have faults and alarms? And so after a power bump or a windstorm, I can go across the entire campus in about three to four minutes, not four hours. Uh, and I can dive into a building, and I can do this all in my pajamas in my living room. That's different. So, um, so we can see all the buildings. That's great. This is the fault count. So all at fault count, and this was yesterday. So I have 5,300 and sorry, 5,237 active faults at yesterday, probably about 7 p.m. And so this is why I have gray hair. This is everything across our campus that's either not working as design or where set points have made outside our standards. Great, I can see it at the top level, but we gotta go a little deeper to tell you what's going on. So we actually can go into to a building. So I picked on city center here. Um, so you see the same, same stagnant dynamic, you know, head count, type of building, type of system, KW. But then you see these numbers on the floor, and there's numbers equates to fault. And then we can go in a little bit deeper and say, okay, we're looking at terminal unit, I have a damper stuck, I think that was stuck stuck open. So this is great. This is a simultaneous heat and cooling. This damper gets stuck open, puts cold air in there, the space gets cold, all of a sudden the heater, heater kicks on. This is exactly what I'm talking about. But you look at when did it happen, what's the asset, what's the priority of the space? Because priority test is very important. Then how much is it wasting in energy? And that's an annual, annual energy waste. And you think, well, $455 a year in energy waste doesn't sound like very much to Microsoft. Doesn't sound like much to anybody. But we have 22,000 um, terminal units. I have 1,000 air handlers. I have hundreds of chillers. This all adds up. And buildings are living, breathing things. If they're not running as a system, then we have problems. I can actually, so this is, this is really cool. So we can prioritize our faults, priority one to five. Priority one is going to be critical space, life safety, uh, maybe the CEO's office. <coughs> maybe. 
Priority five is my office, just so we have a comparison there. So you can look in uh, priority three is, is a lab. It's not, not our critical lab. But you can look at all the problems we're having in a lab. You can see how much we're wasting. And do you go after $17 or do you go after um, $1,700? And so that really allows us to optimize our headcount more effectively. This is one of the, the coolest graphs we have. And again, all we're doing is we're using the data we've always had to look at it in a different way. So every dot on there represents a terminal unit in a, in a building. Buildings have hundreds of terminal units. And so the so top right says uh, Red West A, air handler number two. These are all the um, terminal units. So red means it's in heat mode, blue means it's in cool mode. And I can look at how is a building running as a system in one quick look. And so I can tell you who's gonna be calling because they're too hot, who's gonna be calling because they're too cold, Damper stuck closed, stuck open, starving systems. It gives me a wealth of data that typically before, we were looking at the single problem, hot, cold call, somebody complaining, versus looking at how a building is running as a system. And that's a much different approach in, in how we've done, really um, optimize our buildings. And another cool thing about this, we have the data at our fingertips, all this wealth of information. And so this is one of my favorite reports. This is a performance report of an air handler. These reports took us three, five hours to run, but they weren't consistent. One of the manufacturer systems that looked one way, one looks a different way, but it was never consistent. This takes whether it's independent of whichever manufacturer it is, independent of what type of design it is, it, it makes it very standard. And this report runs in about two minutes. It has about 300,000 of lines behind it. So our mechanical engineers who used to spend 80% of their time as analysts now actually gets to spend their time as engineers. So and it, it allows us to scale much quicker. So this is just a real quick, quick, uh, quick view. We can look at how to work last week, last month, but more importantly, how are we working across seasons? So we really want to see how our mechanical equipment is going from, from spring, you know, as it, as it crosses the different seasons. Um, you know, winter to spring, summer to fall. So, so this is how I sold everything that we did to my boss. It did not look nearly this pretty. So we get a building in our portfolio um, and we walk away from it. Now we, we still do preventive maintenance, but if you think about it, say a building um, comes in and for five years, because our, our retro commissioning cycle is roughly about five years, so we still do preventive maintenance, belt filters, all those great things, but we don't come back and really snap it up for five years. And then we walk away, come back five years, walk away, so wash, rinse, repeat. We don't go very wide, we don't go very deep. We touched about, we touch about 200 assets a year, but we save about, I'd say, um, 250,000 energy. But, but again, we're not going very wide. But now if I have all that data at my fingertips, once we plug in a building, it does nothing but get optimized from that point on. And how I sold it is, hey, we used to go around the campus once every five years and get the whole campus in five-year period. Now you get the whole campus in less than one year. And the savings that comes with that is pretty, pretty real. So for us, it, you know, the punchline is it replaced our manual retro commissioning. We used to hunger down in a conference room, um, don't need to do this, we can automate that, automate our reporting, 
The payback is less than 24 months, and oh, by the way, Washington state is the third lowest energy cost state in the US. If I can make it work here, I'm pretty sure I can make it work anywhere. So just some of the capabilities. It's really, it complements our um, third-party commissioning. It replaced our retro commissioning. Um, it's helping inform our CapEx plan. Which manufacturers should we use? What type of building designs? What's the most effective in how we run our buildings? And it really has changed the way how we operate our portfolio. Persistence, oh, really important. So we can retro commission a building and think, wow, we did great. We high-five each other, and we, we feel really good. A technician or engineer, maybe not meaning so, can in 15 minutes undo everything we just did. And we won't catch it again for another four and a half years. So that kind of persistence, the minute that somebody does something that's either detrimental to the building, wastes energy, we catch it then, not at some point when somebody's calling. So that's a real important part for us as well. Our metrics in how we manage and our, our key performance indicators. So for our facilities team, we looked at how many work orders did we complete per quarter? How many critical work orders? And there were other metrics, but it told me nothing how we were operating the building. They, they just weren't informing. So we actually have changed all our metrics to be much more performance-based. So, so one is, is performance, looking at work orders, how many. You know, so what we're seeing is we run 10,000 work orders a month. And this is both preventive maintenance and reactive. The calls, I'm hot, cold, I hear noise. What we're seeing is the smart building is creating about meh, 500 work orders a month but we're seeing a decrease in our reactive workers, which is exactly what had to happen and what we anticipated would happen. The middle column is really my boss's column. So my boss is a CPA by trade, so obviously he's gonna be focused on consumption or, or dollars, are we hitting our numbers? Um, are we actually seeing the meter slow down? And the third one's about employee experience, right? Are we finding that we're giving a building that's a better state, that people are more productive, they get more done? Hard to measure that, but we can look at the work order data and customer satisfaction to see are we having an impact. Not every building in the world is a good fit for this. So this is a tiers that we came up with. And it's it's a, just a naming, the tiers you can call it, conditions, whatever. But we, we came up with one through four ranking. So a tier one, maybe you have you know, weather data, utility data from the utility company, that's all you have. Maybe it's a warehouse in the middle of Arizona. Probably not a candidate for this, but you can still do a lot with that data. And then you add metering, okay, that's great. But when you start to get a building automation system, then it gets interesting. Then you have more data than you know what to do with. And to be really frank, buildings are becoming more intelligent every day, but they're not becoming very smart. It's not a fair fight for people who are actually man managing and operating buildings. So this is the next generation of Excel. It's called Power BI. Um, so every circle on here is a Microsoft building. The size of the circle is the annual energy consumption. So if you want to know where we're going next, we have about 10 sites around the world we actually are deploying as we talk or as we speak now. Uh, and you can see very, very quickly of which ones we're going to. So Beijing, Hyderabad. Uh, Shanghai, in Europe, we're going to Dublin, UK, which is Timmins Valley Park. And, and, and we're doing this, and the objective is all the engineering, all the fault detection rules writing, we're doing a Redmond. So we're complementing the local team, and sometimes at some points we're, we're providing training on how they run the buildings. 
Um, so a perfect example. I send someone to China every 12 weeks. And they, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but they tend to like to run the building in manual. And we have a very sophisticated building, very flagship building, and they take everything out of automatic. And it, it is very, it's wasting a ton of energy, and it degrades the building system. So we send somebody over there, they put everything back in automatic. You got it, got it, great, great. Halfway over, I'm sure everything's halfway back in a manual by the time we get back to, to Seattle. That's, that's not very effective. So actually, this is where the persistence in the training comes in. That I plug in our, our campus in China, and the minute they start taking it out of automatic, putting in, in manual, we catch it then. We educate, we train. So that has a lot of value in, we're doing all this remote. That's really what we're doing, is using, using this as a tool. And if you have strong teams and strong tools, hallelujah, we were missing the tool part. This is our operations center. So that's a picture of, of the people there. On the right is my little lab. And I am the luckiest guy in the world. I have a 15 million square foot lab in the latitude to try a lot of things. So um, it's, it's pretty cool. And, and I get paid to do it. That's even better. So, so this is really where we do a lot of testing. We test small before we test large. We do field studies. We look at what's coming out in next generation products. We're informing the manufacturers. You know, we actually will help the, the Siemens of the world of how do they make their products better, because at the end of the day, we benefit from as well. So I want you to think about how do you use IT in buildings differently? So this is a fire extinguisher. Everyone knows what that is. We have 8,500 of them across our campus. I spend tens of thousands of dollars each year, someone walking around with a punch card. And we have spaces we really don't want you to go in. So, so how, do you, how do you look at it differently? So, so we actually put our fire extinguishers on the network. So a little dongle behind the, sen behind the dial senses when uh, the extinguisher pressure drops or somebody removes it from the wall. The little motion sensor sen senses if somebody puts a file cabinet. So Redmond PD, I'm sorry, fire department bought off that meets NFPA standards. So now we have our fire extinguishers on the network. It's just thinking differently of IT. So really when, when you ask where do you start, you know, this, this is a journey. There, there's a lot of different solutions out there. I'm not advocating one. We ran a procurement activity. But the really key is, how do you go through the journey? So, you know, for us, is have a strategy. Do you, do you want to have dashboards in your lobbies and, and drive behavior change? Do you want to go deep on the engineering side? What, what are you trying to solve for? That's really what, what everyone has to kind of come up with. Build your requirements. That was super important. What do you want the technology to do? What gaps do you have? What are you trying to solve for? I never want to have software and go look for a problem. I want to have a problem and put software against it. And then we did a gap analysis across our, our entire global portfolio, not just on the buildings, but on the people that manage the buildings. Do so they have the right set, skill set? Do they have the right budget? Is it, does it, you know, do we have everything to do a smart building deployment, if you will? Um, integrate training. I probably underinvested in training initially, and, and I think you know that's one thing I probably would do a do-over on um, to make sure the folks understood. Hey, there's this really cool thing there. Good. Now, now what I do? So actually, integrate into their daily work stream is is where we're at now. And then uh, measure measure for success. So so really to to kind of recap everything. So we have 125 buildings. Half a billion, I'm sorry, 59,000 house heads. We, we're connected to 2 million points and, and aggregate half a billion data transactions every 24 hours. 
Uh, we're taking all the different protocols. So there are two important things with building data, encapsulation and conversion. Encapsulation is just moving data, but conversion, protocol conversion is taking that language sim from French to English. Well, some systems speak Martian. So part of our pilot, the vendors had to prove that they could speak French, Italian, and Martian. Um, so that's really important to be able to, to convert over. Um, I would say what's interesting is, um, there, there it is. So 48% of the things that we're finding, we can fix it in 60 seconds or less. The other 52% we have to roll a truck. Um, and with that, um, just to say thank you very much for this opportunity. This is great to be here, and I, I hope this was, was beneficial. I think we're I think we're going to do some questions and answers. So eager if thanks very much for a very interesting lecture. So um, let's start with some questions, right over there. Uh, if you could wait for just a second to get the microphone, but we're recording. So. The people on the on the other side of the camera can't hear you. Uh, so what software are you using to build all these reports and trends and dashboards? So we're using a company called Iconics out of Foxborough. And there's a really big conflict this week, by the way, with Foxborough, but that's okay. Us in Seattle, we're, 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 we're but, but the point is, you know, we did a procurement activity. We found the best one that met our needs. But the great thing is we thought we'd get to this moment of, ah, the industry isn't ready yet. We're going to have to wait a couple years. But really, that's not the case. There's a lot of solutions. That's why I think knowing what you're trying to solve for and then doing a vendor procurement is the right way to go. So that's this, the company that we used. Um, and, and so just a quick segue. This is a market transition, right this right now. And, and I'm talking to a lot of my peers. Um, the, the coolest one that I've seen doing something very similar is the Pentagon. So the Pentagon, they, they call it the reservation. I got to go into their um, command center. They can take the whole reservation up, spin it, turn it, um, do fault detection. Um, and this is after visiting me and doing some deed dives with me. And I was, my ego was shot. I'm thought, ah, oh, these guys are one, one up me, which is great. But then I thought about it, like, huh, no one's ever going to see this. <laughs> We're still number one. So um, <laughs> but it, it is, and, and I'm seeing universities um, having a lot of, uh, effort around this. So this really is an emerging um, segment that's going on right now. Oh, yeah. Quick follow-up. Did you consider doing it yourselves? I mean, you're Microsoft. No. My, Microsoft, we're the plumbing. So, so we, we don't want to get in the business of building something, you know, competing with the OEMs. What we're doing is we're putting a software layer over everything we have in Microsoft technology, if you will. The vendors are building on technology or Microsoft. Carol, thanks for a fascinating talk. Could you elaborate on your comment that uh, Microsoft is carbon neutral? I'm curious to know, for example, did you achieve that with purchase of offsets? How much renewable energy do you have? And are any of these buildings truly zero net energy? 
So, so no, none of our buildings are, are net zero. Um, for the business that we run, um, we have developer-type developer buildings. It, it'd be very difficult unless we made some pretty invest, heavy investments. So, so how we're hitting the carbon neutrality is offsets, renewable energy certificates. We've actually uh, have two PPAs in wind farms, one in Texas, one in Chicago. And I'm seeing so much momentum around Microsoft. And this is just over a couple years of where they, we've always done the right things and drive efficiency, but even the fact that we're charging internal fee for the carbon you use, so if you have buildings or labs, you actually get taxed, or I don't want to call it a tax, a fee against that. Um, that that's to drive behavior. We, you know, do you take less flights, do you use more remote meeting? Um, there's a lot of different tactics that's being done right now to achieve that, but a lot of it is still in the investment in RECs and offsets. I have the sense that most of what you're talking about was more heating and cooling. I wondered how much about intelligent lighting and, and algorithms around that. You know, um, so lighting across our entire campus is roughly 4% of our overall load. So very small, but everyone can see it. So, so it is a lot of effort around, you know, lighting right now, you're seeing lighting come out to have sensors that look at humidity, temperature. You're seeing just a, uh, just a mass amount of um, excitement in the lighting industry and what's out there right now. So we're, we have done several, we have done, have, are doing several lighting pilots with some of the next generation stuff out. And it's, it's pretty interesting because it all produces data. So the more I can connect and tie and drive, the better, um, the better outcome we'll have. Um, your platform, is it wired or wireless? Um, we have an entire building that's wireless. We're using Zigbee Wireless but most our campuses, well, everything you're seeing up there is wired. So all our buildings are on the network. Um, so that's, a, that's one of the, you have to meet that principle. But we're, we're expanding on our wireless um, right now. Okay. So in our Puget Sound campus, where I pay five and a half cents a kilowatt hour, um, we're, we're primarily hydro on supply. Actually, the majority of our supply is hydro. So, you know, great sustainable story there. In California, we've invested, we have on-site solar. Uh, we have geothermal in Fargo. So as these technologies are coming out, we're investing in them. And hopefully to, to start getting, once I'm using solar and other, other types of renewables in, in Redmond, then the, <laughs> that's going to be the exciting for me. So I know you talked about the software, the iconic software. Is that also your data, all your data manipulation there? Because Microsoft has such a huge data suite, your database, everything, Iconics handled all that. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a couple of different approaches to the software. So, so what we're doing today is we're doing a software overlay that allows us to make informed decision, take this whole mess of data and make it actionable. I'm not doing any command and control. I'm not doing looking at, say, when you know, we're starting to reach the peak, to have a control strategy to start changing things. Today I'm not, tomorrow I will be. Uh, but there, there are vendors out there that you can either, they'll consume the data with for you and provide the engineering. We're more of the on-site model. I mean, it's still cloud-based, but it's still, we're doing the engineering ourselves. We have another question there. How much are you worried about security? So, cybersecurity. A lot. 
So um, any software that gets deployed in our building um, go through a heavy testing on that. So you know we're the second most attacked entity in the world. You know federal government first, we're second. So everything we're putting in the building has to go through smoke test, um, uh, black box test, all these testing to make sure that it meets ours. So the software we're using actually is running in DISA's data center. It's running at the Pentagon. You know, so so there's other, you know, you look at who's also using it to make sure they've gone through the security checks as well. But I do agree that's that's emerging. And here's the, here's a really important point. So if you look at all my peers, other companies out there. The building automation server is sitting underneath somebody's desk in their office, and the password is the word password. So, so when in you know letting you in a little my forward thinking is how do we not take all the devices, not just the building automation server, but all these devices, the Internet of Things, up into the cloud? So that's one of the things we're looking at is really instead of having boxes that we have to maintain, not just for the building automation, but all these devices actually can be communicated cloud, cross, you know, feed the data. Um, and that's really where, where you think of the internet thing starts to collide with all this. And we're going to have a lot of pilots in that where, where it's getting more intense. But I think that's where the, the market will be going as well. So have you published a paper of some kind that documents the, the details of how this process worked out and working with the vendors and collecting that data and turning it into something useful? So when I, so yes, we, we do have some documents. We did a, a paper with uh, Lawrence Berkeley um, National Lab, their EIS group, so Jessica Granderson, um, who's probably, I think, the lead scientist on this, and in the center had written that. But, but this isn't what I started to do. At the end of the day, or really, the, what I was focused on, I was trying to save us money. You know, I, I never expected to go outside of Redmond. This is not what I was trying to do. It just turned out what we were working on it turned out to be very interesting. So um, there's some papers, and I'll share it um, with uh, Samantha and the team. Um, maybe we can post it after this. When you have uh, powder e power issues and need to reduce consumption by 10 or 20 or some goal percent, so is that all automated and how you respond to that? No, we have the mass. Everybody grab a building and start shutting load. Uh, we don't have that, but that is, so if you think of, I, I think I mentioned earlier, so um, it snowed in Redmond about a year ago in winter pretty heavily. I think it was six inches. For us, that's heavy. Um, and there were 2,000 people at, on campus, where there typically are 58, 59,000. Of the 2,000 people on campus, most of them work for the real estate team. The cooks were here, the janitors were here, the maintenance team were here, none of the employees were. Yet all the buildings were running as if it was a normal work day. There was no logic or, or sense in how do we run our portfolio. So we're looking at demand response, demand limiting. We're playing a lot with camera counters. So if the person on the 28th floor of a mid-rise crosses a camera, it's a 15th person, that starts the mechanical equipment, not because, hey, at 7 a.m., bring everything on. So we want to get a lot more smarter in how we op our, operate our buildings, too. Okay. Any more questions? Uh, earlier, you commented something on, um, internally, you're charging like a tax um, that's incentivizing, I guess, different divisions. How, how is that actually done? Is it impacting like actual P&L for individual business groups? Ab yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, so, so TJ, I wish he was here, um, would be able to, to, to go deep on this. But in essence, if, 
you think of the three big carbon drivers for Microsoft, data centers, travel, real estate. Those are really the three. So there's really what the three target. So when I travel on the travel ticket, it says how many carbon, uh, how much CO2e of carbon that I'm causing because of this trip. So it is that awareness. And then the P&L for the labs, if you have labs in, in buildings and data centers, you actually at the, at the top level are charged against that. So there is um, dollars that, that that's, where, that's where the funds come from. Um, so could you say roughly how long does it take to take an existing building and put it online in the system? So, so it depends what the jumping, you know, that's one of those it depends questions. So, so how long does it take to, to do this? You know, if a building's 25 years or younger, it's probably going to have a, or newer, it's probably has a building automation systems flowing data already. Um, some systems are harder to get data than others. Stuff within 10 years, I would say, are pretty relatively easy. Um, but it's, you know, what's your jumping off point? doing the data connection. So we were hitting about two buildings. We can get, our rhythm got to about two buildings a week. You know, the very first building we connected to, we fixed everything that was wrong. And then realized it'd be 100 years to get done. So we really had to, as we went through, we were learning as we were doing. You know, this wasn't something that we had a playbook to look at. We've got one now, but there wasn't one we had before to say, in step 17, do this. Um, but, you know, integrating the California campus, it took us a few weeks, three weeks. To, to do a, a huge campus. It was about 700,000 square feet, I think seven buildings. And we did it all ourselves. We did it remotely. And our whole pilot, we did with five people. So it's not as if you have hundreds of people that go do this. But you really do have to, to push, you know, it's a tool. This is, this is what it is. It's a tool. How do you use it? How do you, if nobody's going to touch it, then don't make the investment. But if you have it, you can embed it in the work streams, and it can push, you know. So one of the things I'm working on right now, this is very cool, is when a building has a fault, it actually will send a, the fault to the work order system. So I actually have buildings generating their own work orders. But we're very programmatic. We want to make sure we get it done right. I don't want a technician coming in the building and saying, huh, I have 95,000 work orders today. Seems high. So we want to make sure that you know, something just doesn't jam and kick a lot of work orders. So, but that's a, we actually have automated the process that so you can actually push a button and it'll push a work order or, or, or the fault into a work order system. Um, but that's our next evolution. So this is, I'll never be done. You know, we have irrigation, we have 42 full services cafes, we have gas. You know, data, data, or data's data to me. It, it doesn't make any difference where it comes from. It's just what are you going to use it for? Um, software is Excel. Um, so, so we haven't in model, the question is are we doing model simulations? Uh, in some of our designs we are, so we, we kind of knowing what are we going to uh, end with or what are we designing to uh, for, for new campuses, but we haven't got to the point. I would say everything we're doing now is getting our fundamentals buttoned up. And, and it's getting it buttoned up in a really big way, but it's where can we take this from now that is where the modeling, the demand response, demand limiting, but if you can't get the fundamentals right, then you have no reason to be pursuing anything else. All right, after this great discussion, uh, let's thank Daryl again for a talk. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.